If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the December 21st, 2020 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Tonight, we revisit the World of Wonder original documentary, Out of Iraq, How Two Men Found Love in the Midst of War. Take a look at another title from the Drag Race producers that explores the life of queer artist Robert Maplethorpe and a tale of Christmas cheer from longtime contributor Rick Watts. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas everywhere you go. The day before Christmas, again. Sunny, 63 degrees, and not a cloud in sight above the shaggy, unkept palm trees lining Sunset Boulevard. Fighting impatient crowds in the grocery store and snarl traffic on the streets as she passed the church with the big red ribbon. Christmas was one thing this day did not look like, thought Sheila, and in her current circumstances this most certainly did not feel like Christmas Eve. Merry Christmas. Merry for whom? Now, 67, Sheila was already alone in the world. Her ex-husband, an Oklahoma Baptist preacher's son, had dumped her 22 years earlier after discovering her letters from an ancient love affair with another woman. Their only child, already estranged from his father, pushed away from Sheila, too, finally running away from home after one particularly nasty argument, when things were said on both sides that ought not have been said. That was the last she'd heard of him for two years, until a San Francisco detective visited her at work, bringing the news she'd long dreaded and her meager wages and poor credit could not purchase even a simple memorial service and urn for his ashes, his remains still resting in a sealed cardboard box in the back of her closet. Christmas. The only signs of its approach in her small apartment were the scrawny, malformed tree, no presents underneath it, though, oh, and the clutter from Christmas Day dinner for five friends from her Alcoholics Anonymous group. She hoped they would bring friends, company that would be a welcome change from her usual solitary home life. So while at the store getting food for tomorrow's feast, she also bought some plastic forks and knives and a pack of those cardboard trays with the little sections to keep the veggies separate from the turkey and the potatoes and so on. Sheila had never been a particularly religious person, and her ex-husband's critical self-righteousness only reinforced her feelings. Still, she found comfort in childhood memories of Christmas Eve candlelight services and resolved to attend that Church of the Big Red Ribbon that evening, seeking to relive some of those moments of years gone by, even though she didn't have what she considered a decent suit or dress for the occasion. She was several minutes late for the service and snuck through the lobby, barely noticing the red-ribbon-adorned memorial plaque with all those names. She scrambled on up into the balcony, 
only to find almost every last seat taken there, too. The service was nice enough. The church was beautifully decorated. The lights, the Christmas tree, the poinsettias down below the pulpit and lectern, framed by a cross, a couple of flags, and, and oh, a, a rainbow flag. There were the usual scriptures and sermon about God coming to earth as a human that other humans could relate to, to save us from ourselves and each other, yada, yada, yada. Sheila could never quite understand the next Bible quote booming over the sound system by some voice of God sounded like guy, something about, where you serve the least of these, there you serve me also. And the other one about where two or more are gathered in God's name there, he is, referring to church, he guessed. And then the final part of the service, everyone's favorite, everyone's lighting candles being lit from what had started as one flame from one candle in the front of the darkened sanctuary. And more scripture being read about a light in the darkness. And then singing, Silent Night, Holy Night. It really was rather nice. All those folks, blue-haired old ladies and tattooed and pierced young punkers singing together. The husbands and wives and their impossibly cute and well-groomed but fidgeting kids. And then she noticed the disheveled man off to the side with the backpack and the garbage bag full of clothes singing at the top of his lungs. She'd passed him often before, pushing a shopping cart overflowing with bottles, cans, and who knows what else. Next to him, another family. And the two young men holding hands, singing from the same hymnal. And another gay couple, and another. That one with kids of their own, all joining the parade of candles slowly winding out of the church, down the steps, and home. At least for those who had homes. By the time she got home, Sheila was exhausted, and she lay restless in her bed, fearful of screwing up dinner the next day somehow, until sheer fatigue finally had its way, and she closed her eyes. What seemed like a moment later, she woke with a start. Noon! She'd overslept and hadn't even started cooking one dish yet. She tossed down two cups of warmed-over coffee and began a mad dash to get the turkey in the oven and the other dishes prepped before calling her guests to warn them that dinner would be late. Damn! No answer! She left a message, then another message, then another... Then another for the husband and wife team in recovery with her. Finally, she jumped in the shower. Everything seemingly now under control, she proudly thought, Damn, I'm multitasking better than a souped-up computer. Yeah, this is going to be okay after all. She dried and styled her hair, now confident of an enjoyable evening with her fellow AA groupies. And then the phone rang. One guest canceling. He didn't feel well. Oh well, more food for us, she thought. And then the phone rang again. The young woman in Sheila's AA group apologized profusely, but had several unexpected guests surprise her with a full-course meal at home. Sheila called her other single guest. He'd been to a party the night before and was still recovering and canceling also. It was already dark when Sheila pulled the turkey out of the oven. Absolutely perfect. Too bad there'll only be three of us eating, Sheila tried to console herself, but at least she'd have some company on this day, of all days. And then she noticed the blinking light on the answering machine. Her remaining guests, the husband and wife, had evidently returned Sheila's call while she was in the shower, and they too had canceled, citing other obligations for this evening. Disappointment turned to anger, turned to self-pity, turned to loneliness, and she struggled against the lump in her throat and the tears welling in her eyes. All her hard work for what? Another Christmas? Alone? Again? She almost pitched the turkey in the trash in anger, but then she remembered the homeless man the night before but one of 92,000 on any given night in Los Angeles, many of whom, for whatever reason, don't or can't get to a shelter or feeding station. And then she remembered the cardboard trays. She dished up her abandoned banquet in all the trays, plus one paper plate, covered them with foil, rubber-banded paper napkins around sets of plastic knives, forks, and spoons, and carefully placed 13 hot, fresh-cooked meals into a couple large boxes 
which she then loaded into her beat-up car and began trolling the mean streets of Hollywood and Silver Lake, looking for dark shapes curled up in bus stops, abandoned doorways and alleys. Tonight was much colder than last night, she noted, and a fine mist was beginning to fall, about as close to Christmas weather as Los Angeles gets, but still not fit to have to sleep in. The first recipient was a grizzled old codger on a bus bench. She asked him if he'd eaten yet, and he replied, No. But his eyes and smile grew wide when she handed him the first tray. At the next stop, next to a self-storage building, were a young man and woman huddled under blankets for warmth. They'd arrived in town yesterday and didn't even know where the shelters were and hadn't eaten since leaving Las Vegas. They, too, appreciated the kindness of this stranger, and in another doorway, an immigrant woman who spoke no English but smiled and uttered, Gracias and asked for another meal for the dark shape behind the hedge, a young girl, her daughter, Sheila presumed, who eagerly wolfed down the meal. And so it went, until finally Sheila was down to four meals, driving west on Santa Monica Boulevard when she passed what looked like someone collapsed in the middle of the street just off the boulevard. She called 911 on her cell phone, doubled around the block, parked and ran, to the extent her 67-year-old legs could run, to the person still sprawled there on the pavement. Are you okay? she asked. With that, what turned out to be a 17-year-old boy looked up at her with a tear-stained face and told Sheila unconvincingly, I'm fine. Please just leave me alone. I want to die. He got up and walked off as the paramedics arrived. With no one to treat, the paramedics shrugged, quickly likewise deserted the scene, leaving Sheila alone watching the boy walk down the block. She jumped back in her car, drove around the block once more, parked, and caught up again with the boy and asked him if he'd eaten, to which he replied, Yes. What's your name? Davy? As Davy, who obviously had been crying, opened up to Sheila, two others, a black transvestite named Latoya and a street hustler called Rex, who were acquaintances of Davy's evidently, happened by and stopped to offer comfort. Sheila thought of her own departed son, as Davy explained that his parents had recently thrown him out of his home for being gay, and that it was Christmas, his first Christmas on the street, and that he was all alone and so sad and lonely that he'd decided to lay down in the street, hoping hoping that someone would run him over when Sheila had happened by. Davy cried in Latoya's arms as he spilled his story. Rex and Sheila, too, were fighting back tears as they listened. Sometimes life's just a real bitch, Latoya replied, hugging Davy consolingly. But you're not alone now, baby. You got us here, and we got you, baby. Come on, group hug. It's Christmas, baby. Smile! And Sheila wiped his tears. Davy asked, You still got that meal? I sure do, Sheila replied as she walked over to her car. I thought you'd already eaten. No, I just, I wasn't hungry earlier. Do you have any extra for my friends? Sheila returned with the last four meals, and all four of them, a 67-year-old woman, a prostitute, a drag queen, and a runaway teen, had Christmas dinner right there on the curb. It was when Latoya again remarked that none of them were alone any longer because they were together, there on the curb on Christmas night, that Sheila remembered from the candlelight service the night before at the Church of the Big Red Ribbon, when the loudspeaker voice of God sound alike said, Wherever two or more are gathered in his name, there he is also. And the other part about, Where you serve the least of these my children, there you serve me also. And then she also remembered the darkness, and the light in the darkness, and the light creating new light to banish the darkness. And then Sheila got it. It really was Christmas, right there on that cold, hard curbside in West Hollywood. And she knew that Davy wasn't the only one who'd been safe that night, because there was Christmas.
Thanks, Rick. Next in IMRU History 101, we look at one of our early contributors, Lucia Chappell. This is Lucia Chappell for IMRU. I'm talking to Frank Zerilli, one of the organizers of this demonstration. Frank, how many people do you think are here? We have no idea, but it's larger than anything we've ever done in Los Angeles before, including the Christopher Street West Parade. It's unbelievable. I'm Lucia Chappell, and I got involved with IMRU sometime early in 75. I was the first woman in the Gay Radio Collective. I was working at KPFK. I was on staff. And I was always running into the guys who were doing IMRU, and we'd chat. I was, switchboard was one of my jobs, so I would sit in the lobby, and they'd talk to me, and they kept badgering me about getting involved in the collective, and I kept going, oh. But um, I finally did it, and it wasn't so bad after all. <laughs> and what can I say? Uh, a world of memories and madness and gonzo queer journalism started then. Tell me about your work on IMRU. Some of my interviews that I remember doing, I remember um, Reverend Elder Frida Smith from Sacramento and the Reverend Jim Sammeyer from Los Angeles. Bob Sirico when he was the executive director at the center. Susan McGreevy several times, particularly on the Norton Sound case, the uh, lesbians who were discharged from the Navy. Oh, and the, the gay pride parades. My goodness, pride parades when you actually got chased by police at the end of the parade and the people with the microphones are all running behind the parade trying not to be caught by the police. Uh, and, and the gay days. I think the first gay day is probably one of my finest memories of all. It was remarkable. And I remember the phone calls. Again, I, when I wasn't on air, I was on the switchboard. And I remember this woman calling up who said, I just had to call today. She said, I'm 80 years old, and I'm a lesbian, and I've never told anyone that before, but I wanted to tell you that today. And she hung up. And I was just, like, sitting there at the switchboard. I didn't know. I, I started to cry. I was just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And then at the end of the day, when people started calling up and we opened the phones, I remember this one guy saying, KPFK has been the giver of light today. I just, I never knew. I never knew. I never knew. That's the kind of radio it was. It was hard, you know? It was no joke. It was no joke. We didn't have counseling services and a million organizations and all that. So, Steve, we would spend about an hour at the station after the show was over, counseling people who called up. Yes, we were like suicide prevention counselors for an hour after the show. Because there was no hotline. Those things didn't exist yet. The center was just getting started. What story are you proudest of? The first March on Washington, 79. Because... It wasn't just any one interview. It was a million different interviews. It was all the interviews leading up to it. Just all the madness that went on beforehand. Just the whole gestalt of that experience that was months long. The guys that did the gay show at the Washington Pacifica station, WPFW, Bill Bogan and his buddies pulled it together. Bill also had an NPR connection. So he got, um, oh gosh, what was that? Moira Rankin. 
was one of our co-anchors. And he set up a whole cooperation with NPR to get the stuff on the air. And then we brought everybody that was doing LGBT shows from all the different stations around the country. We all crashed at Bill's house. <laughs> we were all sleeping on the floor and putting together this broadcast. I think maybe there were about 20 of us all together. Five or six people from KPFA, several from WBAI in New York, the whole gang from Washington, and we put it together. We put it together. And, of course, we had all been covering it, again, leading up to it and sharing our tapes when you had to send cassettes by mail to share tapes. Yes, indeed, we did. So it all grew. Now, that first year, we actually had a line, a phone line that went from the Capitol Mall into NPR to upload the stuff as it was happening. The second march on Washington, we didn't have that kind of connection. We were recording the march and sending somebody on a bicycle with the reel-to-reel tape to NPR to upload it. <laughs> but we did it. But we did it. Did you ever think that IMRU would be on the air for 40 years? <laughs> I didn't think I'd be around for 40 years. <laughs> we're everywhere, part of everything. In every time, come and make our world your home. Don't be alone. If you're down, feeling blue, tell you what to do. Just reach out and Although Lucia Chappell is no longer affiliated with IMRU, she continues her activism and work in queer radio worldwide. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this quick break. Mrs. Claus and Miss Bates, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. As a bishop, St. Nicholas was unmarried, but became transformed into a secular Santa Claus in the 1820s, with Mrs. Claus popping into the picture around 1850. She was popularized by Catherine Lee Bates in her 1889 poem, Goody Santa Claus on a Sleigh Ride, printed as a book with illustrations of Mrs. Claus. Before that, Santa worked alone or was helped by elves. But Mrs. Claus was depicted as no stay-at-home wife. She took a feminist stand, demanding credit for her hard work to making Christmas possible, such as cooking to make Santa plump. Also unconventional was her creator, Catherine Lee Bates, who shared a life and home with Catherine Coleman, her devoted companion. Bates is best known, however, as writer of the lyrics for America the Beautiful. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Daniela Wyatt. Hello, I'm Michelangelo Signorelli, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Lion smell from that gel sanitizer spray. Fragrance of a hospital, I'm sick of things this way. Hey, wash my hands every chance, never touch my face. Sick of washing, cleaning, and protecting my airspace. Wear a mask, what a task, fogs my glasses up. Now I just focus on my eyes when doing my makeup. Yep, big turkey just for me. Wish me well online. I'll chill by my Christmas tree with Netflix and some wine. 
Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you are listening to IMRU Radio. Nayef Harebi and Betu Alami met in Iraq, and their six-year journey to prove love conquers all is the warm, fuzzy, happy ending we need to be reminded of every once in a while, especially in 2020. My name is Nayef Harebit. My name is Betu Alami. Nayef, tell me about your life in Iraq. I was just a normal gay guy, and I cannot be myself there, and I, I was studying in a fine art college, and after the war, I just worked with the U.S. Marines as translator. And what were you up to? After the war, he joined to the military and working with the collection forces. What was Iraq like for you when you were growing up? When did you know you were gay? I always know I'm gay, but it's not easy to be myself. With Iraq, with the liturgies and the culture, it's too difficult to be yourself because you get killed or they torture you to make you example for the others. So I cannot be myself there. Anyone can judge you and kill you just to be a gay there, either your own family. It's only hiding. That's the only way, is just to be acting in front of people, just to be the way how they want you to be. Mm-hmm. But you cannot be yourself if you're a gay guy. And how did you become a translator? After the war, and I just was graduate from my college, and um, I was very interesting to learn more about the English, and I saw the troops was doing a foot patrol back in my area in the south, and I just asked them if I could work with them, and they test my English, which is I learned from the English movies and the music, and they said, oh, you know what, you could help us to training the new police, which is this was a very basic in the beginning as translator, and after that, I start learning more and more, and in 2003, when the war started, everyone was happy with Americans, especially in the south. The dangers come after the militias coming out. And the militias and the religious people, sane for people, and anyone working with Americans is traitor. Those come here to get our home from us. All that poison thinking is what make us a target and make me, as translator, a target from a lot of bad people. How did you two meet? You work in translator. I'm soldier. We don't speak English. We don't understand American military. He translators talk with me and with everyone in Iraq military. I see him every day. Sometimes we need help. We talk to him. Excuse me, we need help. He translators with Marines military. The first time I saw him, I was sitting and it was very warm in the afternoon and he was coming out of the shower. And that's when the first time I saw him and and I said, oh, my God, that guy is really hot. But I was never think he have a feeling to know me more like how I did. So I was just tried to be as a normal as as me and translate and doing my job. But one day we go mission together for clearing the general hospital from the terrorists. And in that mission, we stay in a home together like it was Iraqi battalion, which is his battalion, an American team, which is the Met team and the Marines and some also some bullies. And we sit in that home 15 days. So we was doing our patrols in a day. And at night we were sitting together and he started inviting me for dinner and lunches. And we start talking and talking till we know each other more. 
And after that, we just find out we in love together. Yeah, there we stay together, we eat together. And we start knowing each other, we start talking together, and that's how, how it started. Did you think he may be gay? I feel like inside, the same we, we call gaydar, but not easy. I talk to him, I like to you, or I love you, or I take you gay or not gay. This is not easy there. But after three days, my inside so strong, I did call to him and I talked to him, I love you. But I don't know what's going on after, he maybe not gay. This is big problems, not easy. It's dangerous. But yeah, of course. My job in military, he in translator with Marines is not easy too. In government, family, friends, everyone, it's not easy, but I told him, I love you. He don't give me answer, just kiss me. He go back to room. After me, two days, I'm not eat anything. I think I forget and kiss. Uh, really beautiful feeling. It's amazing, sometimes weird. It's, Crazy, he is my life. Inside, this is my dream. Really, I left to him after that, maybe month, but I don't tell him I love you or I like you. But this time we working together, same place. Yeah, after three days, I, I told so him. So do you want me to translate some or you, no, you get it all? Okay. Yeah, okay. but what about you, so, um, your reaction? So my reaction was I know I was sure if he's gay or not and and after this kiss I just know he want me I mean we could be together because he have the same feeling and so that mean he's gay you know and he w he went to vacation after that and after the vacation we just met and have more kisses you know and our relationship stopped but same time it was very dangerous it was in American base and it's difficult for us to be together. It's difficult from the Iraqi soldiers, difficult from the American side. We cannot just be ourselves there. So we start going different cities to meet at the hotel there and keep meeting each other till I get out to come to United States. Tell me about leaving. How did that come about? There is a program to help translators because their life in danger to help them to go and live in United States, give them asylum. And I have friends, they already did that, so I applied for my asylum, and I got it after 11 months. And that's after decision, me and him, we take it as we need, because we heard about life outside Iraq and the serious queer as folk. We saw there, there is a gay community, they can be themselves, because the way how we was living in Iraq, we not have a lot of touch with the other words. We thought it's the same things. No one would accept any gay. But after I saw that series with the five seasons, which is my favorite till now, and I said, oh, my God, we could be ourselves. We could marry. We could adapt kids. We could do a lot. That's the life I want. That's the life he's want. I just fly, and I just thought it's easy for him to come behind me. And uh, they sent him visa. I told him my boyfriend, and he could come and live together. But it's not what's easy about how I thought. If you'd known it would have been this difficult, would you have reservations about leaving? Yes, because there's no life for us there waiting. Is Either we and me and him get married and just get separate, or maybe still meeting each other 
in a hiding place like a lot of other friends, they're still doing it. Or they find about the relationship and they killed us. So there is no future for us there. And that's the only way we could do it. Talk about the incredible journey he had to go through to get over here. It's take us five years of process. When we apply with the UN, we know there's a lot of other people, but we thought they're going to take care of him just to be as a gay. But we surprised in his first interview, he said they not really care about gays here. They care about families more, which make us really sad and disappointed. This is not what we thought. You make it to the U.S., and he only makes it as far as Lebanon. Then what? Because his background, because he'd been in military, they start just to reject him because they think he says he was a witness for torching. And in the same time, he was uh, legally there. So he cannot go anywhere because a lot of checkpoint in that country. And also, in any time he cut, he will send back to Iraq, which is they already know about our relationship and they will kill him. This is Steve Pride, speaking with Batu Alami and Naref Heredid. Naref, a translator for the U.S. military, and Batu, a soldier in the Iraqi army, faced persecution and possibly death if they stayed in their homeland. But immigration was a rough road, and after obtaining a visa, Naref was forced to leave his love behind, settling in Seattle, with the determination to one day reunite with Batu in a place where they could express their love freely and without fear. What was it like leaving him behind? I come here and it's, it's shock, it's beautiful, it's very gay-friendly. They have a very good LGBT community there. It makes me sad because I'm not here with him. I'm here without him and he's still there with all that situation. And I always feel I'm guilty. I'm the one put him in this, which is make me feel not happy. In any time I meet friends, or they said, let's go to the party. They enjoy it, I not enjoy it, because I'm thinking about him. He should be with me. We should be enjoying it together, not just me. And that was make me sad, which make me calling him, taking him picture every time I felt that bad. And I felt like we decided to go out together, but he's staying in this cage back in that country, and I'm here free. So we just communicate together all that time by Skype, night, days, you know, watching each other, how we sleep, eating together by putting the plates in the front of the camera. I eat breakfast, he eat dinner. And we keep in touch all that time, which is make our relationship more stronger. He know everything's about where I go, what's about my life and everything. And I know everything's about him and how he's feeling, you know. So that will help us to have a hope we can get together. Batu, what was it like for you? And take your time. You speak Arabic and I can translate, okay? Okay. okay. Most difficult, we have different times. We have, there is a night there and there is a sun here, which is make us feel we more farther away from each other. But he said by the sky, by we having a touch together every single day, every moment we free, that will make us have a hope. We will make that time going together and we're going to be in the same time. We now have to live separate by different times. They already say no and we was very hopeless. I almost decided to go live in Lebanon with him 
and whatever is happening to us will be heaven because there is no hope anymore for him to come. There is a hope for us to get together, but not here in the United States. So I just decided to go there. So how did Batu get out? How Batu get out is we heard about Canadian programs called Five Sponsor, which is if you know five Canadian people, they could sponsor you and help in you and take care of you so you could get to immigrate to go living in it. So we go there and we met the Rainbow Refugee uh, Organization and the United Church of Canada, and they work with it, and they was very nice people, and they do his paperwork. And after six months, the Canadian embassy in Lebanon, they ask him about his first interview, and he get accepted in his first interview. They not focus his military life, they focus about his gay life, which is make it much easier for him to understand what he go through. Well, tell me about the meeting, the reunion. The big moment is in Canada and Vancouver when he get out of there. So we know he's coming. I went from Seattle to Vancouver Airport in Canada, and I was waiting, and I was like, is that really happening? Is that really he's coming? We're going to have the same time. We're going to hold each other. We're going to go to places together. You know, we're going to eat together. We're going to have to use the Skype because I'm really tired from Skype. It's been five years just Skyping every single time. All my breaks, my lunches at work, wherever I go, I have to hold the Skype. And I'm tired from it. I need to hold him, not hold the Skype. So when I saw him, he was wearing a T-shirt with a picture of me and him. And he just came and I called him, hey, Habibi, you know. I not believe it. He's here. And for him, he's take him like at least a week to feel like he's really here. And I keep visit him every single week for a year and a half. Every single week. Uh, we get married in Vancouver first, just for the paperwork. And I get my citizen. And in that time, it's much easier for me to make him come and live with me in the United States. And we do our paperwork, and they ask us for an interview back in Montreal. So we fly all that way to Montreal, and it was 27 below the zero. And in 10 minutes, she said, after she asked me a question, asked us both, and she told him, you've been accepted to the United States. Just 10 minutes. We've been waiting five years to hear that. I want to scream. But I could because it's a lot of people and I'm in the embassy. So he said, just wait till we get out. And I just get crazy and scream and, and keep screaming. And he take me to the room and I keep screaming and screaming because this is what I've been waiting all that years. You know, it's finally it's heaven. Finally it's heaven. Finally, we he going to come and live with me with the place we would like to live in. And that's how is it. That's how it, my feel. And it was March 6, 2015. And I come in the morning, and we get the passport with the visa, and we come and we surprise all our friends with bed too. And after that, we get married in August. Eight. August eight. What's your life like here in the States now? Oh, my God. It's much, much better. I feel I'm the most happy in person now. I can focus in my art. I can focus in my work, which is I already get new position as a manager in home decor and when I see Betu working and going to school and excited and people like us about how we RP that's the place called home we love Iraq we never want to leave Iraq but we cannot live with people they don't want us to live there who want to kill us and make us example and torture us those people still there they're not lucky 
they haven't all that and they still having it and we have to do something for it our home here in, in the united states we now help eight or nine people we help them we need help more 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 so we people. working with uh, we make a group is called new life we make it since we was in canada the group is between canadian americans and a lot of iraqis we already sponsor eight lgbt people from iraq we help them to find a job get they stand tell them about the culture teach them how they use the bus you know so our message is that's the kind of help is not should be money just do whatever you could to help those people to get in their feet and help them to know more about this community here because i have a lot of friends they come here and they shock is different culture is not easy for you live all of your life back there and you come here and you yes is better is free you could be yourself but it's still different it's still not home it's still not the language and most of those people they're not speaking english so we need the people here helping them to get in their feet same for me before i'm not speaking english never now it's fine not 100% but i'm understand something now my life here my home here i love him he my family what is it about him that you love the most galaxy everything this has been a conversation with af harabin and batu alami this is the pride Thanks for listening. Out of Iraq is streaming on WOW Presents Plus at wowpresentsplus.com, the only streaming service featuring Work the World, Aww, with Trixie and Katya, and hundreds of other World of Wonder originals, documentaries, and specials. It's a pay service costing $3.99 a month, but offers a seven-day free trial. Just remember to drop it after that first week, unless you want to continue. Which we will do, after this quick break. The Hard Nut by Mark Morris, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. What would Christmas be without the Nutcracker? or in this case, its campy counterpart, The Hard Nut. The ballet premiered in Brussels in 1991 and was created by openly gay choreographer Mark Morris. The Hard Nut doesn't take place in Victorian times, but in 1960s suburbia with a subtle gay subtext. Instead of toy soldiers doing battle with the mice, there are G.I. Joes. The Waltz of the Snowflakes number includes male dancers and tutus, throwing 20 pounds of confetti snowflakes per show, followed by a strong duet with Drosselmeyer and his nephew. Men and women dance on point, including the prissy housekeeper who nearly steals the show. It's pure fun, just like the holiday. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Autumn Reinhardt Simpson. Hi, I'm Amanda Burse, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Frosty reception when I go to Santa's knee. He recoils and hides behind his mask, shot by a perspex screen. We're over COVID, it has really been unkind. Bring on 21, this year is done, let's leave all this crap behind. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. 
and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Next up, another title streaming on WOW Presents Plus at wowpresentsplus.com is Maplethorpe, Look at the Pictures. Steve Pride talked to the producers and creative minds behind World of Wonder. Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbado are the undisputed kings of reality TV with shows like Million Dollar Listing, Big Frida, Queen of Bounce, and the RuPaul Drag Race franchise. But they are also documentarians with films like The Eyes of Tammy Faye, The Strange History of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, Becoming Chaz, and now they've turned their attention to a subject who always loved attention, Robert Maplethorpe. I'm Randy Barbado, co-director, co-producer of Maplethorpe Look at the Pictures. I'm Fenton Bailey, co-producer and co-director of Maplethorpe Look at the Pictures. Well, I assume it's about Maplethorpe, but what else is this documentary about? Photography being recognized as a fine art. Because when Maplethorpe started out taking photographs, it certainly wasn't recognized as a fine art. You wouldn't go to gallery openings and there wasn't a market for fine art photography. And Maple that really played a key role in turning it into something recognized as a fine art. The film Maplethorpe Look at the Pictures is also about the art scene in New York in the 70s. It was in some ways the end of innocence of <laughs> art in New York. Or it was a tipping point for a different kind of artist. And I think Maplethorpe was at the forefront of that, along with Warhol, but just this idea that your ambition could be part of who you were and part of what made you unique. Prior to Maplethorpe, people would sort of not be very open about their ambition to become great artists. There's a lot about his ambition in the film. Talk about that. Ambition is kind of seen as a dirty word. Even today, I think, we sneer at the Kardashians, for example. We see them as fame seekers and desperate. And really, I mean, in the 70s, the idea of the artist was someone who was starving in their garret, producing beautiful work, waiting to be discovered. I think Maplethorpe was impatient with that and felt that it wasn't enough just to make beautiful things. You really had to hustle and get the work out there, get the work placed in prestigious galleries, get the work placed with wealthy collectors, become famous. And he spent a lot of time courting writers because they became his friends, but they became his friends because they would write about him. And he knew that fame was really important to leverage his work and to establish himself as an artist. And so I think you see this change from the artist starving in their garret to the artist as a celebrity, bold-faced name, who's a brand, who's a business. Randy and I were living in the East Village in the, in the 80s, and we never met Maplethorpe. We never knew him personally, but we certainly knew of him. The name Maplethorpe was already a name to be conjured with. I mean, he, he was already a brand, really. What was the hardest part of doing the film? Our feelings about the subject. We've made a lot of films about people who are sort of overexposed yet under-revealed. Most of the people we turn our camera on are perceived as outsiders. They are often people at the beginning of the process that we connect with their humanity for some reason, whether it was Tammy Faye or Monica Lewinsky. With Maplethorpe, it wasn't really like that for us. At the beginning of this process, 
we were very ambivalent about our feelings towards him. So it was kind of challenging. You know, it's so much easier when you really have a connection with who you're making a film about, like a deep emotional or heartfelt connection. And that eventually happened with us in Maplethorpe, but it took over a year for that Mm -hmm. to really happen. We kept saying, oh, I don't know if I like him. (laughs) But ultimately, weirdly, some of the very things that I think a lot of people might walk away from the film saying, mm, not sure, those are some of the things that we really liked about him, like his naked ambition, because those are the things that contributed to his authenticity, to his being living a true, open, authentic life and never kind of editing himself. That's a big thing, especially back then, to be as open and brazen and honest about all the aspects of his life, those are the characteristics that we ended up liking and finding the most admirable. A lot of people told us how seductive he was. And I guess ultimately he seduced us because, (laughs) yes, he was out. He was a gay man at a time when a lot of artists, you know, there's always been gay people and there's always been people who were out. But the art world actually wasn't, even though it was very there were a lot of gay people in it. It wasn't a very out world in the 70s. And he was always out. But he was out of the closet in every sense. And I think even in the sense of showing us what he was doing, of being transparent about what he was doing, being open about his ambition, honest about the use of his relationships. You know, he said about Sam Wagstaff, his sugar daddy patron, he said, yeah, you know, if Sam hadn't had the money, I might not have uh, taken up with him. You know, in some ways, he was like a documentarian. He just wanted to tell the truth and to be authentic, even if it wasn't necessarily flattering about him. The film helps you understand that here was this guy who sort of really goes on this journey in his short life and pursues his curiosity to the fullest. So... It is exciting in that way. And we were on that journey as well as we were making the film. Also, for him at one point to just stop dating and sleeping with white men and to become fully obsessed with the black male form. And that's something that just was part of his development. So I love that he pursued all his curiosities and photographed them, documented it. Yeah, I love that quote from Maplethorpe talking about his childhood saying, Early on, he knew he wanted to be an artist, whatever that was. He didn't even know what an artist was or what an artist did or what it involved, but he knew he wanted to be one. I think that speaks volumes about the man. And ultimately, his life was his art. Mm -hmm. I mean, we made lots of discoveries making this film. And by the way, one of them was how amazing his art is because the film also really tracks his evolution as an artist. And there's a lot, we have almost 500 images in the film. I mean, you really get to see his body of work in a major way and, and in an exciting way, especially his early work that many people probably have never seen. But it was not just the physical manifestation of his art that made him a great artist. It was the way he led his life. It was the person who he was. Like his brother Edward Maplethorpe said, he was fully consumed by it. He lived the life, and that's what his art was. That's why we say he was a documentarian, because his life was the work of art. And then the pictures, and he said this himself, the pictures were second to that. And the the role of the pictures was to document, 
this work of art that was his life. And then, of course, the writers he courted, their role was to write about it. So there would be pictures and there would be words to put them all together. And you have this Maplethorpe, one massive work of art. You know, I think the best documentaries are the ones that really document someone's journey. Did you know going in what that journey was? For us, it was a journey of discovery along the way. For example, although we knew we were going to open the film with Jesse Helms ranting, look at the pictures, believe it or not, we didn't realize that should be the title of the film until we were almost done editing. So Mm -hmm. there were some things we discovered along the way. We also discovered as an artist, we could understand him and relate to him as a documentarian. We love making documentary films, and and Mapplethorpe was definitely a documentary kind of guy. He wanted his ephemera and memorabilia to be in a museum. You know, he wanted that mineshaft membership card to be handled with rubber gloves. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's what also made it very difficult to make the film. It took a little over two years to make the film, which is kind of short in some documentary standards, but it took a lot of time to figure it out. One of the big discoveries was, though he is a singular artist, Maplethorpe, we kind of discovered he was a serial collaborator. He didn't just do it on his own. Again, he himself said, taking photographs of someone is a very intimate collaboration and that the subject is as important as the person taking the picture. And he collaborated in lots of ways with lots of people in a very strategic way. In the film, you have Bob Colicello, the editor of Interview, talking about how Maplethorpe sort of wooed him because Bob Colicello could help him and sent him off on assignments with high society, which immediately put Robert where he needed to be in terms of showing his work to wealthy people who could buy it. But also even his lawyer, Michael Stout, who's the president of the foundation, Robert had a long relationship with him, not a physical relationship, working relationship, and set up the foundation before he died to continue his legacy. And I think these twin exhibitions at Lacma and Getty are very much, you have to recognize the agency of Maplethorpe in anticipating this kind of reputation for him. He planned it all. That's what's so incredible. He planned it all and he collaborated with a lot of people. What was your biggest surprise about Robert Maplethorpe in making the film? That we came out liking him as much as we did. I think the other big surprise is how much work he produced in such a short period of time and how much of it is amazing. What has it done for the queer community that these things are now hanging in museums? I mean, I don't think Robert Maplethorpe was an activist. I don't think you would find him marching in a gay pride parade. But he made things visible that were invisible. And he generally didn't believe in shame or apologizing And so in every sense, I think he helped break down the idea of the closet. When he was taking photographs, number one, no serious artist was using the medium of photography, really. And number two, you certainly didn't take photographs of intimacy and sexuality. That was considered pornography. And Maplethorpe said, no, 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 hang on a second, this isn't true. And again, it's hard for us to imagine what it was like before 
Bruce Weber, Marky Mark, Calvin Klein, before the male body was commodified. But it's because of Maplethorpe, in fact, that we now can look at male nudes and enjoy them and they can be used in advertising because absolutely it was unheard of. It was scandalous. It was considered disgusting to be showing male nudity and, and the kind of sexuality and sex that he had no problem shooting. And people told him he was going to ruin his career if he shot these kinds of things. And he stuck to his guns. And I think he was right. And I think that as the gay world becomes more mainstream and assimilates straight, it's important for us to remember and give props to the outsiders and the outlaws of our community because they broke down walls and barriers while most everyone was in the closet, including a huge majority of the art world who were incredibly closeted. I mean, he was a sexual outlaw who was taking the movement forward. Again, he was never political in the traditional sense. And there are probably many people in the gay community who would find what he did then and now outrageous and not moving things forward for gays and lesbians. But I think on the contrary, and he himself has talked about how his art is about opening up people's minds. Mm. You know, that's what art is about. And that's what his art is about. And that's why we believe also that it's even some of the most explicit of his work is the most important because it challenges people the way they should be challenged. This has been a conversation with Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbado about their documentary, Maplethorpe, Look at the Pictures. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. I want you. As we said in the intro, Maplethorpe Look at the Pictures is streaming on Wild Presents Plus at wildpresentsplus.com. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, Email volunteer at imruradio.org. And a reminder, we're a global podcast, as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. And a reminder, masks, social distancing, Hand-washing and sanitizing precautions were all taken in the production of this show. Be careful out there. Happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, Blessed Solstice, Plentiful Kwanzaa, and Festivus for the rest of us. Good night. This year has passed, goodbye at last, time marches on, virus not gone, Christmas is here, where's all the cheer, 2020, we've had plenty. We'll stay at home, feast all alone, don't Santa sneak, keep clear of me, shopping online, quieter lines, your gifts are masked, no need to us, no carol.
2020 is a closet whisper. Better year next year is all a wish.